0: Got a quick question for you this morning, while you uh, while you're seated. Think back to the days when you were a kid, right? And it was dinner time. Imagine your uh, your family setting and whatever dinner time was like. How many of you, when it was supper time at your house as a kid, right? How many of you had just something really no structure at all, just somewhat chaotic, and it was always cutting up and always goofing off around the dinner table. How many of you? That's kind of the way it was for you. Anybody? All right, that's sort of the way it was for us. Just a lot of cutting up, and uh, older brother and me. My two sisters were already outgrown and out of the house by the time by the time I came along. But we always just had a lot of fun at dinner time when we were actually at the table, because there was always a ball practice or always something going on, and uh, we didn't always have a lot of structure. Now, how many of you, when you think about dinner time for you as a kid uh, in your family, how many of you it was totally structured, very very formal? It was like, "Hello, mother. Hello, father. Ask sister to pass the potatoes, please." How many of you it was like that? Any of you? All right, some of you—that's the way it was. It's interesting because when you think about those dynamics, every dinner table structure, right, is different. Everybody's lives are different, regardless of where you go on the globe, right? Some places, some countries, their their culture is going to be a little different than here. But even here in our culture, I mean, it's just—it's all over the map. I mean, people's different experiences, you know, around supper time, you know, they vary. But, but here's what we find really when you think about the table. Let's just call it the table. When you think about that, that's kind of in a lot of ways where family is formed, right? In a lot of ways, it's around the table where reconnections are made. I mean, you think about it. The kids go off to school, you know, and then they come home, and then it's homework or it's ball practice or, you know, the husband's got, you know, uh, uh, work and, and uh, mom, she's got work or she's got other things that are going on. And so life gets so scattered and so disjointed and so disconnected. Many times it's the table where all that gets. It's reconnected. Many times it's the table around the concept of supper, right, dinner. It's the table where ultimately, you know, decisions are made, and plans are made, and you sit down, and you, you know, whether you're always joking or whether you're always formal, you know, you're talking about what's coming down the pipe, you know, what's the future, what are we going to do this week, what are we going to do next week, what's coming up this weekend, you know, uh, uh, disagreements are hashed out. I mean, it, a lot is handled around the table, I mean, there is a lot of things that are handled around the table, and yet even in that regard, things, things have changed from the way they used to be back in the day. Listen to this quote I came across from a guy named Sky Jathani, and uh, his name is irregardless. But listen, listen to this quote. It's interesting what he says. He says, family zones are demarcated by fences. And that's kind of the way we are today, right? We've got all of us have our privacy fences. Family zones are also demarcated by fences. And within the home, family members are zoned into private bedrooms, each with a television, internet connection, and telephone, right? So we've all got our own separate little compartments. And the suburb, like the consumer worldview from which it came, forms us or forces us to live fragmented and isolated lives of private consumption. When you think about it, what happens around the table today is much different back in the days you know, of Brady Bunch or Leave It to Cleaver or Be- Leave It to Beaver or whatever his name was. right? It's so much different. And, uh, and, and so today, is, it's, a, it's it's a different day. In a lot of ways, this isn't a message about family, but again, this is what's happening. Well, it's interesting because when you look at the whole structure of family and when you look at the whole context of the table, we can take that down, when you look at what it means to be around the table, this is nothing new. Because all throughout Scripture, we find that Jesus did so much of his ministry in the context of the table. In fact, it's been said that Jesus ate his way through the Gospels, all right? So when you think about the Gospels, you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. For those of you that are brand new to studying you know, the Bible or learning about God, If that's you, the Gospels are kind of those four books in the New Testament uh, that talk about the life and ministry of Jesus. And if you come to a place to where you think, you know what, I want to read about Jesus. I want to know about him. I don't want to hear about the church yet. I don't want to hear about other people's thoughts. I just want to learn about Jesus and about his life and about what he did and about what he said. Then the gospels are for you, right? And there are four different perspectives. None of them contradict each other. All add a different perspective. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so it has been said that Jesus ate his way through the Gospels, and so much of his life was lived in the context of the table, right? Having meals with people. When you think about it, there are two different events involving food that are mentioned in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. One is what we call today the Last Supper, uh, which we're going to look at here in just a couple of minutes. And then the other is the feeding of the 5,000. Both of those involved meals, both of those involved food, both of those involved Jesus, right? As he was eating his way through the four Gospels. One of the instances in Jesus's ministry in his life, one of the primary ones I guess we could say where food was involved also happened to involve a party. Uh, It's kind of interesting because it's it's in uh, the Gospel of Mark chapter 2 where Jesus calls one of his disciples a guy named Matthew. Sometimes we read of his name as Levi, and uh, and so Jesus crosses paths with Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector, which in those days was not a uh, a well thought of position of uh, of leadership. Right? It wasn't a well thought of vocation. So Matthew was a tax collector. Jesus crosses paths with him. Basically, long story short, short says Matthew, I want you to follow me. In other words, put down your life, put down your old life, put down your vocation, and I want you to ultimately follow me a- as one of my own. And I want you to not only follow me as Savior and Lord, but follow me in every aspect of your life. And Matthew did that. And it was so cool because after that happened, you know, Jesus said, so basically, you know, we're going to throw a party. And so Matthew, invite all your friends, invite all your other fellow tax collectors that nobody likes. And I want you to get all these people in here that they, all the religious people call sinners, right? And I want you to bring them all up into your house and I'm going to be there and we're going to have a party and we're going to have some food, right? And so it's in that context that we find Jesus Again, eating his way through the Gospels. He's there at Matthew's house, big old party going on, and all the the rejects from the religious circles are there, and Jesus is able to introduce himself to them. In the book of Luke, we find that Jesus, uh, specifically in chapter 11, Jesus is having lunch with a, uh, with a Pharisee. Now, you think this would be a big deal, right? Jesus is in town. I want to get to know this guy. And, uh, and yet the Pharisee, Luke tells us, when Jesus is in his home, this guy has invited Jesus into his home. Now, this Pharisee cared more about religion, cared more about the rules than he did about an actual relationship with God. And so this Pharisee has Jesus into his house for lunch, and uh, it's like, a you know, they're doing lunch together, and, uh, and Luke tells us that the Pharisee, all he could really see was the fact that Jesus had not ceremonially cleansed his hands before eating. Didn't really matter that God was in the house. All he saw was a rule, his rule, that had been broken in the context of a meal. Luke chapter 14, a few chapters later, you find that Jesus is again in the presence of a Pharisee, it happens to be the Sabbath, right, the big day for, for uh, folks that were of a Jewish heritage, and there in, the, in that setting at that meal was a man with a disease, and uh, Jesus heals the man there on the Sabbath, which was a no-no, it was a rule break, right, And the part of the Pharisees, all they could see was that Jesus broke their rule, they missed the Savior altogether, but it was all in the context of a meal, Later in Luke chapter 24, Jesus has already died on the cross. He's already resurrected from the dead. And uh, he crosses paths with two travelers on a road to a city called Emmaus, about seven miles outside of Jerusalem. These two travelers are really downtrodden. They're downcast. They're saddened because they had hoped Jesus would be the Messiah. Last they heard, he had been crucified. He had died. They were unaware that he had been risen, risen from the dead. And so Jesus crosses paths with them, the resurrected Christ, right? God crosses paths with them. And it says in the context of that meeting that as they travel, they ultimately, at the end of that day, break bread together. They have a meal together. And it's in the context of that meal. It's at the table, right, that as they share a meal together, that Jesus reveals himself to them and everything changes for them. And all throughout Jesus's ministry, we see example after example after example of Jesus doing ministry of Jesus, introducing himself to people in the context of the table, right? In the context of a meal. For some reason, he knew that was a place for barriers to fall. He knew that was a place for intimacy to be experienced, for hearts to be shared. He, He knew that was a setting that he could use to his advantage. And he did. Jesus did often. Again, to the point to where one has said that he ate his way completely through the Gospels, interacting with people. So it's no surprise, is it, when it comes to the end of his days on this earth, his last moment to share with the disciples before he's crucified, it's no shocker, knowing what we know about Jesus, that he's going to share, what, a meal with his disciples. I don't think he would have called it the Last Supper, but for some reason... Believers, after the fact, have chosen to do that, and so we'll call it the Last Supper as well. So read with me here, Mark chapter 12, and you're going to find here Mark's perspective of this very Jewish event called Passover, which is about to be redefined as an event that we today call the Last Supper, and ultimately would hold the elements of what we call the Lord's Supper. Mark gives us his perspective in chapter 14. It's a lengthy passage, but read with me if you don't have your bibles, you can read on the overhead. Mark chapter 12 or Mark chapter 14 beginning in verse 12. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, this was this Jewish holy celebration. His disciples said to him, said to Jesus, "Where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover, of course, Jesus?" In an earthly sense, was Jewish by heritage. And he sent two of his disciples and he said to them, Go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And this just sounds like a lot of fun, right? It sounds like the great race. You know, it sounds like a big kind of a tre- sort of a treasure hunt. He says, Go to the city. When you get there, you're going to find this man. He's going to be, you know, whether he's outside or walking in the street, he's going to have a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of that house, "'The teacher says, where is my guest room "'in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples?' "'And he himself will show you a large upper room.'" This was not uncommon in those days, but he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, prepare for us there. And so his disciples went out and they came to the city and they found it just as he had told them. In other words, they saw the man with the pitcher of water, they followed him into the house, they found the owner, they said, where's your upper room? And boom, there it was, set up and ready, just like Jesus said." So they came to the city, they found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he, Jesus, came with the twelve, came with his twelve disciples, and as they were reclining at the table, there's this context, and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be grieved, and they said to him one by one, Surely not I. And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is is to go, just as it is written of Him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Next slide. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. While they were eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it, and he gave it to them, and he said, Take it, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks He gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. There were a lot of moving parts to that passage of Scripture. But there were three things that happened there that if we look closely, we see them very, very clearly. One is it was in the context of the table that sin was exposed. It's in the context of that table, that meal together, that sin was exposed. It would be Judas that Jesus would say, there's one here that's going to betray me. I I believe Judas would have had the opportunity. Now, we know prophecy had been foretold and those kinds of things, but Judas would have had an opportunity, I believe. He was not a robot that had been pre-wired to betray Christ. He had an opportunity to make a decision, and yet he chose to go the wrong way as an act of his will. God knew it in advance, but it would be Judas's choice to betray, yet it was in the context of the table that Jesus would expose sin. It was in the context of the table, secondly, that the mission would be reinforced. This was going to be a new mission, right? Jesus would go so far as to call it a new covenant. You have an Old Testament, an Old Covenant, and a New Testament, a new covenant in your Bible. Jesus would say, this, this bread is my body which is given for you. This blood or this cup is my blood which is shed for you, right? This is a new covenant. Uh, th- this is something brand new. The Old Testament points to it. The, the Old Testament is like the flower that is not yet open. The New Testament is that flower bursting open with all of its color and all of its fragrance. This is a new covenant, and it's in the context of the table that Jesus says, there is a new mission, right? I have come to seek and save that which was lost, Luke 19, 10. And now you're going to be a part of that mission as well as my ambassador and as my followers. And so in the context of the table, sin is exposed, a mission is reinforced, and God is worshiped. It said at the end of that meal that they sang sang a hymn, right? Probably something that all of them obviously would have known. Jesus wouldn't have said, turn to hymn number 475 in your Baptist hymnal, Victory in Jesus. He wouldn't have done that, right? It would have been a hymn, a Jewish hymn, a song of praise to God, a worship to God that would have taken place. Fast forward 25 years, Jesus has been crucified, buried, resurrected. He's ascended back to the Father. 25 years, give or take, has passed. Now there's a a missionary named Paul, and he's traveling the world uh, uh, carrying the message of the gospel. He's in a city called Corinth, or he's writing a letter to a group of Christians, a church literally in the city of Corinth, a very godless city. And he tells them, you need to have some structure when you celebrate what we now call the Lord's Supper and he gives them instruction in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Look at what it says on the overhead here. As Paul gives instruction, he says to this church in Corinth, that I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Nothing had changed in 25 years since Jesus celebrated this with his disciples to begin with. Nothing had changed. And now the early church is coming, and it's there in this context that sin would be exposed. If you know 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is continually in that letter fixing things that have gone wrong and even giving instruction for the celebration of the Lord's Supper at the table to expose sin, to deal with it. I can't imagine that the mission would not be reinforced there in the city of Corinth in that church where they would say, listen, man, we live in a godless city and we are here for a reason. Our Savior is alive. Our Savior is, is, is real. We need to share the message of the Savior. We need to go after those who don't have a relationship with him and share the message of hope for them. That mission would have been reinforced at the table and God would be worshiped there. Who would be at the table in Corinth? Broken Christians. Discouraged Christians, struggling Christians, rich, poor, healthy, unhealthy—all of them would have been at the at the table. Those who had it figured out and those who were really, really badly missing the mark. And the common bond they had was Jesus. Fast forward two thousand years to today, and here we are taking our place in line, celebrating what the church has celebrated now for two thousand years. Who is at the table today? It's us. Those who have it figured out and those who don't. Those who struggle and those whose faith is strong. Those who understand more about regret and those who understand more about grace. Those who get along and those who don't. But the one commonality for the table today is that we have already given our lives to Jesus. And it's in this context often that sin in our lives is exposed and the Holy Spirit, in a way that only He can, whispers to our heart, it's time for this attitude, this action to go. And it's in the context of the table we have to decide who we're going to follow. It's in the context of this table today that the mission is reinforced because before Jesus would return to the Father, he would give us some commands. One, to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. To love him authentically, genuinely, passionately. Two, to love our neighbor as ourselves, to love them even in a way that puts them before ourselves, selflessly. And three, to go into all the world and to make disciples. That we be a part of his mission. It's at this table that sin is exposed. The mission is reinforced, and that we worship God. My mom, when she passed away, was in her 90s. Her last two years were lived, as most of you know, in a facility for those with Alzheimer's. That was the care that she required. We saw the warning signs before, really. After my dad passed away, different things that she would do that were out of the ordinary. One of those was that she had a table. Susie and I and the kids would go and visit her at her her place where she lived in her condo before she moved into the Alzheimer's facility. She had this table with four chairs, probably about this wide in circumference, I guess. And um, her behavior was starting to change. We were seeing it, and some of us just didn't want to admit it, I guess. But one of the things she had done to that table, if you're familiar with Alzheimer's at all, you know that some of their behavior can be erratic. She had taken like dollar store little gemstones, right? Brightly colored plastic. And she had begun to glue them to the top of that table. There was really no pattern. There was no rhyme or reason, except for the fact that in one sense, they did make a circle around the outer edge of that table. All brightly colored, dollar store, cheap, Little gemstones glued <laughs> to the table. I mean, you'd go in, and it's like, "Mom, what's going on with the what's going on with the gemstones?" <laughs> you know, and there's really no explanation. It's just sort of where she was in her life at that stage. She's not there anymore, praise God. She's got a new life in heaven. After she passed away, as most families would do, we began to my brother and I and my two sisters we'd go through the stuff, right some of it you just donate some of it you give away and garage sale and very little of it if any do you store and parts of it you just sort of portion out to family members you know what we got that table the four chairs that went with it my wife susie got that table and she went to work and she began to take off those gemstones just that picture of chaos and she began to work really, really hard sanding that table and staining that table. And she and her mom got those four chairs, and they recovered those chairs, and she painted those chairs to the point to where today that table and those four chairs sit in our house and have now for probably three, four years. Repurposed, recrafted, not touched up, remade. And it's a lot what God does with us, isn't it? Lives that are a bit chaotic, with things there that really just don't belong, and we're the ones who put them there. But when we're placed in the hands of our Savior, he begins to take out the things that don't belong, he begins to put the things that do, and to the point to where one day we can look back and say, I'm not the person I used to be. I'm changed. I was changed the instant I gave my life to Jesus, but he's been changing me in ways ever since. It's often in the context of the table that we're reminded how that happens, that it was a Savior who gave his body and a Savior who shed his blood, not just to speak wise words that will make our life a little smoother, not just to perform great deeds that will give us stories to tell for centuries, but he came to take over question is, has he taken over your life today? And if he hasn't, never has, right where you sit this morning, you can invite him to do it. It's why he's here, is to save those who are lost. And he'll save you no matter where you've been or what you've done. He'll save you if you just surrender and ask. But for those of us that have done that, he'll also do amazing work in our lives if we just let him. And so rather than coming to the table today with kind of a somber attitude, well, it's Lord's Supper again. This is a time to celebrate that we aren't who we are without Him. At the same time, it may be in this context that He shows you some sin that needs to go, that He reminds you of the mission that you were on beginning the day you surrendered, and it's here in the context of this table that He wants your worship full, genuine, and authentic. So with heads bowed and eyes closed this morning, if you've never given your life to Jesus, and today is a day that you're ready to do that, there's no magical words, but right where you sit, you can say a prayer similar to this, praying to Jesus. And Lord Jesus, I know that I need you, and I know that I've sinned, and my sin has broken my relationship with God. But today is an act of my will I turn from my sin the best that I can. And I place my faith in you, Lord Jesus. Trusting that your payment on the cross was enough for me. Trusting that you rose from the dead just as your word tells me. And I place my faith in you and invite you to come in and to take over. To cleanse my heart and to make my life what you want it to be. Lord Jesus, today I invite you to save me and to keep me. As I surrender myself to you, for it's in your name that I pray, amen.